Welcome to the Wellington In Our Time History podcast with me, your host, Miss Rob. We will be joined by two members of the history department today, Mr. Guttridge and Mr. Pickering Carter, to discuss one of the most interesting periods in South African history, the rise and fall of apartheid. While some people might feel inclined to jump straight in with the National Party election victory in 48, there's some key background information about South Africa in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that can help us contextualise why South Africa took the route it did in the latter half of the 20th century. So, Mr Guttridge, gold was discovered in South Africa in the 1880s. What were the consequences? Massive. It's a simple answer. Uh, the uh, What the gold did is it created a gold rush uh, and the diamonds uh, and massive immigration from the uh, not just uh, Europeans but also within Africa to uh, to uh, mine this this very precious uh, material and uh, create a, a viable very wealthy viable country. With this, it attracted uh, people wanting to maintain the the, the very uh, the, the divided society and maintain their profits. To be to be frank, so. In other words, uh, the the black uh, South, Afri- South Africans were brought in to mine in terrible conditions, but be very cheap. And white labour was also brought in to do some of the supervisory and mining roles. And there was a need at the time, they felt, to keep the two sides apart. So we therefore got an impact on uh, land ownership and job allocation and salaries. So from the very foundation of South Africa from the Boer War, which was 1901, it ended onwards, there was a need, as they felt, for racial segregation. And also the British, led by the Cape Colony, if you like, the sort of the British colony, under its leadership of Cecil Rhodes, was very keen to take over the uh, Africana or Boer area of the country and because of the profits to be made there. So the legacy of this then was this racial segregation as South Africa became an independent country was to beca- uh, was to create embed racial segregation in law and in employment uh, land and day-to-day life many of the uh, legislation that we are going to hear about later was uh, started at before 1948 in the National Party's historic victory after the Second World War so you've alluded to then some of this discrimination that existed before 48. And I think it's a bit of a misnomer in general society that we have 48, National Party come in, suddenly there's tons of discrimination. Um, Mr Pickering Carter, can you give us some specifics about the discrimination that existed prior to the National Party election victory? Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, it is very important to highlight that it was actually present um, prior to the National Party election in 1948. Um, And so you could start by looking at the fact that society was actually inherently split uh, between racial groups, uh, firstly the whites, uh, then the blacks, and then the Indians, and then the coloreds. Um, So things were already inherently um, structured, and there was a form of hierarchy even prior to the National Party coming in in 1948. on top of that, uh, despite the whites actually being the minority in South Africa, they actually held uh, virtually all um, of the power in terms of uh, decision-making and with key positions within the economy. Um, also, if you look at uh, the way people were settled in terms of where they lived geographically, it was split rural versus urban. Um, most white people lived in the cities, um, and then within the rural areas, um, the majority of the land was owned by the white minority. Um, and then also in the towns, you had the townships, which segregated uh, what seemed to be an increasing migration of black people uh, into specific areas within those towns. Um, so there was already quite a bit of segregation and uh, discrimination prior to 1948. So... It's a divided society then, already, by the time we get to 48. What factors actually led to the victory of the National Party? Um, so there are four key ones. Uh, firstly, uh, the growth of Africana nationalism. Um, so uh, the white minority in South Africa were split between the English-speaking white South Africans um, and the Africana uh, white South Africans that would have descended from the Dutch settlers in the 17th century. And... Um, Africana nationalism and a sense of identity was growing, 
before 1948 quite considerably, um, which was impacted partly by the Second World War, uh, because during the war there was a split between the English-speaking white South Africans that would have predominantly have supported the Allies, um, and quite a number of Africana um, white South Africans that would have supported Nazi Germany. And uh, despite Germany losing the war, uh, the, the Africana sense of um, self and so forth was still nonetheless growing. Um, so there you've got two uh, key reasons, uh, one of which is the growth of nation nationalism. Uh, the second is the, the war itself, which also leads into um, more black people being brought into the cities in order to work. Uh, which then led some people to believe that racial segregation might be relaxed by the United Party that were in power at the time. And so people flocked to the National Party in order to try and uh, uh, prevent what they perceived to be a relaxation of discrimination uh, based on race. Um, and so uh, you've got a combination of things there of growth of nationalism, uh, fears of uh, race laws becoming more relaxed and liberal, the Second World War, and the United Party um, narrative and uh, policy. I guess people often think about it as a National Party victory, but it's almost equally a United Party loss. You know, they had Jan Smuts, who was this kind of aged figure who'd, you know, they, they were the sitting party who, you know, when you're in times of crisis, often are the ones blamed for things. Um, and they didn't have quite so coherent a policy as the National Party. They sort of seemed to be umming and ahhing about the race issue. There was this big fear of ostrooming, you know, flooding into the cities, which links to what you were saying about the war. So yeah, th that plays a key role. Something not to, you know, underestimate as well is you know the electoral system there the Westminster constituency system if you look at the stats on election victories technically the National Party don't actually win they just win enough constituencies overall to, to get into the government so the, I think there's so many things to think about you know rather than just the idea of you know a racist people who vote in uh, who vote in the National Party so National Party come in then 1948 and they set about implementing this system of apartheid or apartness that they'd campaigned for um, Mr Guttridge what forms of discrimination then are introduced post-48. Yes, it's, it's uh, interesting to focus on the word apartheid, separateness or apartness. Let's create, as they saw it, a, a, a split according to which race you're allocated to. And within two years, they'd passed two important acts of parliament. The Population Registration Act, which divided uh, or classified people by race. So you're either white, black, coloured, which is mixed race, or Indian. Uh, and and then you therefore could be, well, whites could do this, blacks couldn't, uh, and so on. And then also in the same year, they had the Group Areas Act 1950, where they each race was assigned places where they could live, either within uh, within cities usually, but also in rural areas as well. So there were two kinds of apartheid, um, two terms. The first one is petty, or the sort of day-to-day -day, uh, apartheid. And those of you who are studying US civil rights will understand that the Jim Crow laws, I think is an interesting parallel, sort of uh, the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act, which public facilities like buses or cinemas, each race could use. Also, they had the Mixed Marriages Act uh, and the Immorality Act, which restricted um, uh, sexual relations and, and marriage between different races. They wanted to avoid uh, sort of diluting the white race or whatever, uh, I guess is the, how they would have seen it. Uh, uh, yes, and then um, also on top of this, you've got the um, Bantu Education Act uh, in which the, they, 1953, in which they reduced, the government reduced spending or really, or uh, they, they reorientated black education to be much more fixed on creating a uh, a group of uh, black or non-white South Africans who were designated particular role in society. So why teach them uh, maths if all they're going to do is they're going to go up and down a mine or be in domestic service? Uh, and so that was the curriculum was done that and obviously funding and they closed down a sort of the missionary schools, the very good uh, schools often run by missionaries dotted around the country. Uh, so that and uh, quite a lot going on here. Uh, yes, forced removals. So uh, they removed, the, the police went in uh, one day and removed by force people living in a particular suburb or district of a city, famously Sophia Town. 
in Johannesburg and District 6 in Cape Town were good examples of that. They created townships like Soweto, where the uh, workers required for, say, mining and, and industry were forced to live. And as well, they created the Bantu stands, the homelands uh, dotted around uh, the country. There were 10 of them, uh, like KwaZulu and Transkei. And here, this was the, even though the majority of the population were black, they were only really allocated 11% of the land. And here they could be free, in inverted commas, to do what they like. And there was a semblance of black leadership, of usually of the old tribal chiefs in these uh, tiny areas, given the worst land, as you can imagine, massive overcrowding and soil erosion and, and the like. And so you are, so in a sense, if you were non-white, you were either, or if you were black, you were either living in a Bantustan, a homeland, or you were only living in a city because you, your employment was required by your white employer. So that was your destiny uh, if you were a black South African. So not a particularly great time then to be non-white in South Africa. Um, they didn't take this sort of sitting down, though. There was a lot of um, action against this by the communities in South Africa. Um, Mr. Pickering-Carter, what can you tell me about the resistance in the early years? Um, so, uh, as one might expect, the resistance to apartheid started to, to grow quite quickly, uh, not necessarily in a linear fashion, but um, in peaks and troughs. And uh, you've got essentially multiple groups which spring up during the 50s. Um, which then further develop in the 1960s. Uh, so, for example, the African National Congress uh, was actually around before the National Party came to power, uh, having been formed in 1912, um, and it was gaining momentum to, in, in, in its uh, pursuit of providing uh, better quality of life and uh, ownership and representation for black Africans. Uh, so they are around at this time and gaining significance and some might say a degree of influence with black Africans um, following the initial implementation of apartheid. Uh, you've also got the Communist Party of South Africa, which is a multiracial organization which seeked to um, unite people based upon working class ideals rather than on race. So you've also got this international element feeding in here of course with the Cold War context um, and they would have w worked alongside the ANC. Uh, you've also got the Youth League of the ANC uh, led by Walter Sisulu who essentially gives way to quite a number of big names in our course. Uh, Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo and Robert Sabuku, all of which um, become more significant uh, later in South African history and uh, they are instrumental as part of the defiance campaign whereby uh, these groups, uh, the, the Youth League for example, the ANC, uh, encourage black Africans to uh, essentially non-violently um, uh, put the spoke in the will, so to speak, uh, and make things difficult for the government. Um, and they do a number of things. Uh, they protest, uh, they go on strike, they break the law. As I say, it's inherently non-violent, but it's designed to clog up the court system. So uh, it becomes a logistical nightmare, essentially. Um, and then in 1955, uh, you've got uh, one could say codification, if that's a word, uh, a codified um, agreement with the Freedom Charter, whereby a number of different anti-apartheid groups put down in writing uh, what they would like to see in a post-apartheid South Africa. Um, and it's uh, really a settlement of ideals which provides the, the framework for further resistance. So they're up to a lot then, basically, in the in the 1950s. Um, but what we see when we go into the 1960s is a change of tactics. You know, you spoke about this non-violence that they use. You know, they've got influences from Gandhi. They're definitely taking influences from the civil rights movement in America. And yet they change tack. Why? Why do they change tack? Yes, uh, thank you. You mentioned some of the things I was going to say there. But um, very much, if you're from a black perspective, you, you're... You, you, you're showing, you, you know, you're following the textbook. Gandhi achieved these things by being um, uh, nonviolent. The US civil rights movement is starting to emerge with sort of Little Rock uh, and those kind of events, uh, the Freedom Rides, uh, and they're making progress, but you are not. And uh, 
Mandela made a great uh, quotation from or speech at his trial, at Ravonia trial in 1964. And he said, uh, the government which uses force to support its rule teaches the oppressed to use force to oppose it. And then he said, we, we the ANC, will use violence as the government has left us no choice. In other words, why do they use violence? Because peaceful means had failed, sensibly. So what we're getting now is, is massive oppression uh, from the government. That is their response. We've got the Public Safety Act, uh, 35,000 full-time police, 31,000 part-time police, the Riotous Assemblies Act 1956, the Unlawful Organisations Act 1960. All these measures are being used to squash peaceful or, or non-violent uh, direct action protest. And uh, and perhaps it's not surprising that the more radical elements of the anti-apartheid movement uh, shift their focus or their tactics towards violent ones. It wasn't a unified decision, though, was it? You know, they really did um and ah about this decision to adopt the armed struggle. And quite often that the trigger point to being like, right, enough is enough is Sharpeville. Or certainly some historians argue that it's Sharpeville. The idea that, you know, by the time we get to the start of the 60s, they're once again doing a peaceful protest. In this case, it's the PAC rather than the ANC. And they're fired on, you know, uh, and there's deaths and, and people have been shot in the back. And then there's waves of, uh, you know, further repressions after that. Um, and nothing seems to be working. Um, so, yeah, I quite agree with you. Um, as part of this decision to adopt the armed struggle then, we get the creation of, of two different groups. So MK, who are the offshoot of the ANC, and POCO, who are the offshoot of the PAC. Um, what can you tell me about those, Mr Guttridge? Uh, they were obviously very small kind of, let's call them terrorists, uh, um, guerrilla fighters, freedom fighters, uh, having to largely operate uh, or would certainly train and base themselves abroad in countries like Mozambique and Zambia. And uh, with the ANC leader now, the one that's left, is Oliver Tambo, and he's in London trying to direct and coordinate this. The, these groups, I can imagine the these idealistic young men and women crossing the border, huge risk to their families and themselves, picking up weapons, living in pretty hostile conditions in very makeshift camps. And there were allegations of bullying and, uh, and sort of not very pleasant sort of military training areas. And, and um, then they would go back into South Africa and cause, uh, I would say, rather limited uh, disruption, uh, mainly sort of uh, perhaps we should praise them for focusing on infrastructure rather than bombing civilians. But so blowing up electricity pylons and setting fire to uh, crops uh, was not going to change the government's uh, opinions. Uh, and um, and many of them were arrested. And indeed, the South African Defence Forces would uh, send uh, their own forces to these countries and, and to murder, to kill these terrorists in uh, in Zambia and Mozambique, bre breaching. Uh, many international laws by doing that uh, and but it did mean that the MK and the POCO were rather ineffective to be honest. Yeah so by the time we get to the mid-1960s this government repression against the actions of MK and, and POCO have really taken hold in that we have you know pretty much wholesale arrest of all of the key figures that Mr Pickering Carter mentioned a few minutes ago most notably Mandela. Um, so by the time we get to 1964 then um, we we have a strengthened apartheid you know mid-1960s apartheid looks like it's in a pretty good position. Um, Mr Pickering Carter what can you tell me about why apartheid was so strong? Um, well, see, as a natural consequence of there being uh, more opposition and it turning violent, it would make sense for the National Party to try and strengthen their hand um, and their control over society. Um, and so, yeah, as a result of the Ravonia trial, um, all number of people within the anti-apartheid movement are rounded up um, and either exiled or sent to prison. Um, you've also got uh, the um, banning of opposition groups essentially, so the ANC and PAC are not able to operate in as easy a way as they would have been able to uh, previously, uh, which of course then makes it far more difficult for the opposition to organise and then launch some sort of official opposition. Um, also, uh, Vorster, uh, a new man um, in government, introduces quite a number of uh, repressive measures um, through multiple acts uh, which essentially increased the uh, police department's power 
and the security forces in general to be able to um, uh, preempt what could have been perceived as potential threats and to try and thwart them before they happened. Um, and there was not always necessarily uh, trials in the traditional sense, and so people could essentially be arrested and put away in prison. Um, and so, as a consequence of those things, the government was able to strengthen its hand, and so therefore able to strengthen its policy of apartheid during the 60s. So repression then is key to this strengthened position. You've got tons of government legislation. You've got a, a weakened um, anti-apartheid movement within South Africa because we've had leadership either in exile or they're arrested. Um, you know, tons of legislation. And also what we've got is, is economic prosperity. Um, you know, South Africa in the 60s is, is doing OK, um, which is one of the contributors to the fact that we have, you know, less grassroots activism. You know, people's lives have improved. You know, uh, black improvements was not on par with, you know, things like uh, wage increases in the white community. But life did get a little bit better for everybody. Um, so, you know, the economy plays a role in all of this as well. Um so this is where we're at then. End of the 1960s. Apartheid is looking pretty strong. The uh, uh, domestic anti-apartheid movement is pretty weak. Our leadership has all been arrested. So this is where we're at at the end of the 1960s. Looking forward then into the 1970s, we've got a kind of new phase um, of uh, anti-apartheid um, opposition. Um, one of the kind of key um, movements, I suppose, in this is the, uh, the kind of black consciousness movement. Um, what was black consciousness? It was a, an idea that the black people of South Africa and indeed of Africa could, don't, don't need white help, that actually they can bring, come together and achieve what they want to achieve themselves. And in South Africa, the architect of this was a man called Steve Biko, and he set up the South African Students Association. Uh, and when he was very young, just 22, and he, he was a real um, uh, dynamic inspirational, charismatic leader for the movement. So a new leadership, I guess, that was emerging. They also believed uh, that the black South Africans should be educated to be proud of their heritage and be prepared for future leadership within an anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, it was, became increasingly radical and was banned in 1973, uh, this organization. Now, what is particularly interesting, though, with Black Consciousness and Steve Biko. In fact, its high point was the, the death of the, its leader, um, almost a cause celebre, and his martyrdom being murdered by the security forces really attracted international attention on, on South Africa. And uh, they, they were, it's, um, his, his ally was a white man called Donald Woods, who, a clergyman who was able to really articulate to a very interested, increasingly interested audience overseas. And, uh, and there's even a film, Cry Freedom, which I would recommend about uh, their relationship. Uh, Peter Gabriel wrote a song about Steve Biko uh, and um, 20,000 turned up at a football stadium uh, it, for Biko's funeral. So he really was, uh, he reignited... A, a, at a time when it was in in the limbo in limbo and i think he protest became a little bit more of a mass movement as a result of his uh, his organization so perhaps it, it sort of restart reignited the anti-apartheid movement to in somewhat we have spoken about the black consciousness movement and its significance um, as this kind of new movement in the 1970s. Um, while Sharpeville is our kind of defining moment of the 1960s, the Soweto uprising and massacre is the defining moment of the 1970s. Mr. Gustridge, what can you tell me about that? Yes, yeah, so the Soweto uprising in 1976 was pushed by um, this uh, SASO, the South African Students Organization, the late uh, Steve Bigo's group. And it was really about uh, whether lessons should be conducted in Afrikaans or English. And again, this is coming back to the National Party's very sort of almost arrogant uh, attitude that perhaps if black South Africans, all they're going to be doing is working for their Africana masters, why should they have all their lessons in English or uh, Koza or their tribal languages? They should have them in the language of the master, of the boss, the overseer. And learning maths in Afrikaans and so on was, was a clearly 
very unpopular and particularly as the teachers didn't speak it. Uh, so you can see how this, again, radicalised, particularly the young, uh, against it. And there was a big protest in Soweto. And famously, so there are two, there's so a final thing, a very famous photograph of the death of a child, Hector Peterson, being carried. Uh, and that, and it's the international, like Sharpville, uh, like Steve Biko's death. Here we've now got Soweto uh, uprising and all of these just got more and more international attention uh, uh, criticism for the government. So the big change then, I suppose, between the 60s and the 70s in terms of activism is in the 60s, it's your people like Mandela, Tambo, Sisulu, you know, that they are adults. Whereas actually what we start to see in the 70s is greater activism amongst literal school children who don't want to be taught in the language of the oppressor. So there's a real kind of shift in dynamics of uh, of resistance. Um, Mr. Pickering Carter, we've spoken a little bit then that the ANC post Ravonia, they, you know, they're, they're pretty much, you know, dormant in South Africa now. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not doing anything. They are based in exile. They continue their actions. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what they get up to? Yes, indeed. It links actually in with some of the things that Mr. Gartridge has already made reference to uh, with regard to military training and guerrilla warfare and so forth. And uh, essentially what quite a number of the political players are doing uh, from the ANC in these exiled countries is learning how to fight. Um, and uh, learning military tactics and things that would be needed for guerrilla warfare. Um, although, because quite a number of the neighbouring countries were actually quite pro-South Africa, uh, it, it could be argued that the, this was limited, uh, the, these efforts were limited in terms of the extent to which they were then able to get back into South Africa and then create an uprising. Um, so, uh, there is this effort with which to try and push military training as, as a means with which to propel forward the MK and POCO, um, but it's limited uh, for, for the reasons associated with political alliances and so forth. Um, you do have um, alliances though amongst the anti-apartheid movements in these exiled countries, so there's the ZAPU, uh, which is an organisation fighting white supremacy in Rhodesia. Uh, or what is now today Zimbabwe. Uh, so there are opportunities for these people to come together and discuss their ideas, but as I say, I think the key here is that it's it's a limited enterprise and um, really there's not much in the way of military uh, guerrilla warfare in South Africa during this period. Um, also, uh, there are restructuring efforts, uh, so the exiled groups need to think a little bit more about how they're going to organize themselves and then go from there. Um, and also there's a focus on trying to improve the efficiency of the organizations that are against apartheid. Uh, so there's both a sort of military element to this and political restructuring effort mm -hmm. well, whilst they're abroad. Whilst at the same time trying to get funding, you know, appealing to appealing to nations um, who might support them in, in terms of getting funding to the ANC in exile. Um, yeah, OK. Um, so ANC then, they are active. We're not seeing a load of achievements in the 1970s and 80s. Um, but in South Africa, if we if we dive back into looking at what's going on within South Africa, the National Party, we said, you know, at the end of the 1960s, everything's going pretty well for them. The, you know, repression is is on a is on a high. The anti-apartheid movement is is pretty much, um, you know, dead in the water. Um, but they start to come into some problems in the 1970s. What can you tell me about those? Mm. Well, I mean, there, there is an increase in resistance, and, and this comes in the form of the Black Consciousness Movement and uh, the South African Students' Organization. Um, and this is very much a sort of uh, bottom-up movement rather than, say, a top-down movement. And it's quite popular, um, and of course it leads to the uprising, as Mr. Guttridge alluded to, in 1976. Um, and then the, the death of Steve Biko a year later is um, something that grabs the headlines and so there's as a result of that a greater emphasis on international pressure and uh, a lot of Western media for example in Great Britain uh, and in the United States both of which had their own civil rights movements at this time are putting greater amounts of pressure on the South African government with regard to its policy of apartheid. Um, there's also the economic element which is very important to state uh, and that is that, of course, you've got the oil crisis in 1973, 
And quite often, whenever something goes wrong economically, it leads to all number of other problems within a society too. Um, you've also got the, f the, the expense of the Bantu stands, which the government is ha having to uphold at the time. Uh, it's not able to control these entirely. It is also very expensive. Um, and then lastly, you've also got these internal divisions within the National Party as well. Uh, and so there are two camps, the Bekrampter and Velikta groups, uh, one of which is more conservative and wishes to stick to the status quo, and others that are more progressive and wish to see changes to the way things are done. So a combination of these things, international pressure, economic problems, growing opposition from the bottom up, and internal divisions is leading to problems for the National Party by the late 60s and then certainly during the 70s. Um, thank you very much. So we've got all of these internal problems. One of the responses to these problems is we start to see changes in South Africa. So political changes, political concessions being given. And the main guy we need to know about uh, for this is a man called Botha. Um, what can you tell me about the changes that he introduces? Um, so he introduces several changes at a time when it seems things are just changing more broadly, both overseas and domestically in South Africa. Uh, from a political point of view, he uh, introduces some degree of reform to petty apartheid, um, petty apartheid being the sort of day-to-day uh, -day running of apartheid policy versus grand apartheid, which is more the overall philosophy on a national level. Uh, he, he, he reforms that, and he does so by lifting a number of restrictions on black Africans. Um, so the past laws, for example, are revoked. Uh, the Mixed Marriages Act is also revoked. And there's an encouragement f for local councils to desegregate parks, for example, and other public areas. Um, he also introduces a new position within South African government. Uh, so he goes from being prime minister to president, which essentially gives him greater control of the executive branch of government, which is essentially the centre of power. Um, and uh, as well as that, there's a reform of parliament uh, whereby a tricameral system is introduced, i.e. three sections of government, um, and it's encouraged to represent the various different uh, groups, racial groups, within South African society. Um, so he, he does quite a bit. Uh, although there is a debate amongst historians about the extent to which these were actual changes, uh, you know, were they more cosmetic or were they fundamental? Uh, this is a debate to be had. I suppose his motivations can also be called into question. Is this the, the idea of, you know, as you say, cosmetic reforms from above to prevent, you know, mass reform being pushed through by force from below? Um, okay. So that's where we're at then in the uh, in the 1970s and the early 1980s. Um, once again, when we get to the 80s, we start to see a bit of a change. Um, and one of the big movements um, that we see in the, the 1980s is the township revolts. Um, Mr. Guttridge, what can you tell me about those? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the townships are these huge, almost squatter camps, uh, which are very, very close to these white cities. Uh, and indeed, even every town, in a sense, would have one of these uh, uh, across South Africa. They were starting to become more and more violent, a lot of black on black violence within uh, and and this kind of protest and uh, horrendous yes, violence uh, was was escalating. Part of this was the foundation of the United Democratic Front, or the UDF, in 1983, in which 575 separate groups got together and promised to work. So we've now got to work together to help bring about the, an end to apartheid. So we've now got more coordination across the country and across the races. We, we talk a lot about uh, the black uh, um, protest groups, but actually the Indians, Indian protest groups, have a particular... Um, uh, sort of strength in their community uh, and and power, uh, within, particularly in Durban, where many of them live, and the coloureds as well in the sort of Cape Colony or the former Cape Colony area. So in 1984, 175 uh, who died, I think, in just one sort of bloodletting, uh, thousands of strikes, mines. Uh, mine stri mining strikes, uh, bus boycotts, uh, and so on. In 1985, um, 879 people were dying 
in in the townships. Local government had collapsed. Police post offices burnt down. Uh, uh, sort of council offices destroyed. No one paying their taxes or anything like this. Uh, and the police terrified to go in. One of the images I've got. Uh, I was at school at this time. Is of these armoured vehicles going into the townships with soldiers and armed police with their heads up there, all pointing rifles and shotguns at unarmed rioters, violent people in this sort of terrible terrain of rubble and, and squalor uh, and firing into the crowds and the terrified crowds return with a few bricks and then running away. Uh, and that really is the image of South Africa. The government had lost control over a sizable proportion of its population. So in theory, then, you know, the protesters had achieved their aim. Their aim was to make the townships ungovernable, to force the government into action. And that is what they achieved. Unfortunately, it was at the expense of, of government repression and the violence that that ensued uh, and the deaths that that ensued. But they do make the townships ungovernable. And I guess the most notable example would be Alexandra. So, the you know, the, the big township revolt that occur, occurs there, where basically you've got sort of martial law imposed. The, the township is surrounded. Um so this is, I suppose, the background to the National Party beginning negotiations. So this is us. We're talking about the lead up to, to the, the Cadessa. Um, why do the National Party decide now to, to start negotiations? Why doesn't it occur in the 60s or 70s? Why is it now? I th- I- uh, Mr. Pickering Carter gave up gave many of the the reasons and uh, uh, sort of the long term reasons. Uh, particularly, I, I'm particularly favour the economic argument. I think was effectively did, did apartheid end uh, because of uh, um, the international pressure or, or black grassroots rebellion. I think it's they ran out of money uh, and they could not afford to prop up the the system anymore. Inflation was now 18 percent. Uh, I've got a statistic. South African economy went from the eighth richest by per GDP in the world in the 1960s to the 50th, 50th uh, richest uh, in the world uh, um, just in a, in a couple of decades. And this or even less. And this illustrates the, uh, the almost the the uh, complacent uh, attitude of the government where you rely on cheap unskilled labor uh, um, and high tariffs just to sustain uh, uh, an economy which eventually uh, collapses the government is split uh, the national party has a corruption scandal and they start to lose votes um, to so the as Mr. Pickering Carter said, the party splits in two, sort of not literally splits, but there's different points of, uh, of opinion between the two two extremes of the party. And many of the voters start to move to more uh, sort of the Conservative Party, I think they were called, the Africana uh, Party. Yes, the Conservatives. And they uh, their vote, they're now on, only on 52% of the vote by, n- by 1988-1988. So they're going to lose the next election um, if this carries on. And um, so, uh, was there anything else? Oh, so what they did was a bit of obviously foreign pressure as well. The USA turning, uh, changing, being more assertive towards with the uh, un-American, no, uh, the law which um, you couldn't uh, uh, fly direct to or invest in South Africa. Uh, which the name of the Lord just has just slipped my mind, um, but these uh, this again puts pressure on it. So, Berta, uh it gets a bit uh, unwell, and they decide a bit like uh, reminds me of South Africa. They avoid the, the sorry the Russians, the Soviet Union, appointing Gorbachev mm-hmm. to kind of create a new uh, th- sort of direction for the party to stay in power, uh, and fails. Uh, here we have de Klerk. The reformer is appointed to provide a new strategy and new direction. Uh, and uh, let's see what happens next. So to summarise then, we've got internal unrest with the township revolts. We've got external pressure with the ANC still in action over there. External pressure in terms of diplomatic pressure, you know, sporting boycotts. And then finally, some serious economic boycotts coming in. You know, if we were to compare the economic boycotts in the 80s versus those that came after Sharpeville, we're starting to, to really hit home now. Um, and I think the key thing, you know, you've mentioned is, is the weakness of the National Party at this point. Again, if we were to compare 
the National Party of the mid-1960s with that that exists at the end of the 80s. They are very vulnerable. Um, you know, we've got other white minority parties who are starting to steal their votes. Um, and economically, they're not in a good way. The Bantu stands are, are draining all of their resources. You know, they insist on building football stadiums and, uh, and airports in all of these Bantu stands to keep up this ruse that they're decolonizing South Africa, you know, giving independence to these created homelands. Um, so, yeah, they're not in a particularly good way. So with this, they then embark on this process of negotiations. Um, and this is Codessa. Um, so what can you tell me about Codessa, Mr. Pickering Carter? Um, so really picking up from what's been said already with regard to the political, social and economic problems that South Africa's facing, um, by 1991, um, there is a need for one could say diplomacy and uh, a meeting of the various different people involved, the stakeholders. Um, and so in 1991 there is CODESA 1, that is the Convention for a Democratic South Africa. Um, and this essentially brings together all number of people that have a vested interest in this location, South Africa, um, and it's an opportunity for people to discuss how a post-apartheid South Africa might look. Uh, things don't go particularly well to begin with, um, which in itself leads to a second CODESA, CODESA 2. Um, so to confirm that is a Convention for a Democratic South Africa. And this one runs from 1992 to 1994. Um, it's essentially hard bargaining. Uh, it is all those stakeholders talking about what needs to happen and uh, how it's going to happen. So you essentially have a complete turnaround. Uh, key figures in the anti-apartheid movement are released from prison. Uh, political parties and groups that had previously been banned are unbanned and there are things put in place with which to facilitate an election whereby all people within society are allowed to vote uh, and so suffrage is therefore widened. So this is CODESA then, these negotiations, multi-party negotiations, which the ANC take part in, uh, amongst others. You know, you've got the Encarta Freedom Party, although their involvement um, is slightly changeable throughout the process. Um, so we've got negotiations. How do we actually see the end of apartheid? You know, these negotiations start in 91. By 94, Mandela is president. How do we go from one to the other? Yeah, no, this is a very interesting question. And uh, it's really a combination of things. Um, if you were to sort of put them into some form of uh, matrix or scale, uh, you could say that international pressure, for example, um, both on a political and economic level, created this environment whereby there was a lot more focus on South Africa as a country from overseas. And so the, the um, National Party had to be seen to be doing something. Um, from a political point of view, it was um, having boycotts, placed on its sporting events, for example. Uh, from an economic point of view, there were crippling sanctions by this stage. And as I said before, if you have economic problems, all number of other things tend to spring from that. So straight away, you've got a basis by which the National Party are going to be far more willing to change the environment and adapt. Um, so that's two things right there. You've got international pressure, and you've also got National Party willingness to adapt. Um, you could also throw into that, of course, economic unrest and instability, which comes from those two things, um, and also increasing domestic unrest as well in the township, uh, the township revolts. Uh, so there's a sort of multifaceted series of events going on whereby together they create this scenario whereby the only option is negotiation and some form of change. And these negotiations result in, in an election, and it is that election that, you know, puts Mandela in charge. We have this creation of a, of a government where some of the previous National Party officials are allowed to remain in charge, when we've also got representatives of the ANC. So it's sort of seen as a compromise. This is South Africa desperately trying to avoid a civil war scenario that had, you know, overwhelmed some of their, uh, some of their neighbouring nations in Southern Africa. Um, so that's where we're at then. 1994, uh, United, um, National Party, sorry, is out and the ANC are in. Mandela is now our leader. Um, I want to spend the last couple of minutes just doing a brief summary of um, some of the key people and groups that we need to know about for the course. So in terms of apartheid officials, um, Mr Pickering Carter, can you can you tell me a little bit about who are the key people over the, over the whole course that sure. we need to know about? Yeah, and it's, it's really important to know the entire uh, group of people from 1948 to 1994. 
Um, so Milan, for example, is the politician that oversees the National Party victory in 1948. Um, he is then followed by Verwood, who, to get, uh, well, the two of them together are essentially responsible for um, introducing and then strengthening an apartheid in South Africa. Um, you then have Vorster, who comes in after Verwood, who is again instrumental in strengthening apartheid and responding to events as they unfold, uh, followed by Botha, of course, who introduces some degree of reform, but again that's questioned as to the extent to which that was fundamental versus cosmetic, um, followed then by de Klerk, who then follows through essentially with these uh, restructuring efforts and negotiations, which then hands on to uh, uh, Nelson Mandela in 1994. Yeah, it's important to have an understanding of, of all of these key leaders. One we didn't really talk about during this uh, recording was, was Verwood, you know, the kind of architect of the whole apartheid system. But he is responsible for a lot of the legislation that's passed in the early apartheid era in his positions as, a, you know, um, Minister of Native Affairs and then the, the positions he goes to hold on after that. Um, so those are our apartheid officials. Um, but there are key people we need to know about in the fight against apartheid. We've spoken about a lot of them. But Mr. Guttridge, can you just summarise our, our key people here? Yes, uh the two, I'll focus on two actually. Uh, Nelson Mandela, of course, the the hero really of the of the story, uh, and he uh, was instrumental. So, 1948, it was during the Second World War. He and others, uh, Walter Zulu, uh, Oliver Tambo, uh, uh, and Robert Sibukwe, I think, were very instrumental in the ANC Youth League, regalvanizing the ANC at that at the beginning uh, of the National Party uh, regime, uh, and uh, so he was very uh, key in that and then he was the leader of the movement at the critical moment when it became went from a peaceful uh, um, direct action group to a violent uh, group and bringing the party or the organization with him uh, co-founder of the M uh, MK uh, and he also had very strong links with the South African Communist Party and unions he uh, was uh, Ravonia trial, of course. Uh, he made this very long speech, and um, uh, and where he came across as a very humane and articulate man, who really, how could you disagree with him? Uh, and uh, but if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. Is his famous final uh, saying. I'm prepared to die for equal opportunities. So, you know, who, uh, and he came across very well. So that, um, and then of course, when he is instrumental in bringing the ANC from a violent terrorist organization effectively to a much more of a party in waiting or government in waiting, uh, and that's uh, and negotiating and also p calling to clerk's bluff, if you like, by saying to clerk, insisting it's one person, one vote. Uh, de Klerk wanted, I think, a white chamber and a black chamber in Parliament or something like that, with whites having a veto. De uh, Mandela held his nerve and uh, pushed for um, a one-person, one-vote uh, system of government. Kind of remarkable, in a way, given that he spends the vast majority of the period in prison. Yes. You know, from 64, Ravonia trial, that's him. He is in prison quite often in, in isolation um, up until he suddenly is taking part in these negotiations. You know, he, he's given some sort of temporary releases in the, the late 1980s, but his real, I guess, yeah, moment is in the, is in the, yeah, the 1990s. Uh, he is, of course, the face of, you know, um, the campaign, even whilst in prison. You've got the free free Nelson Mandela movement uh, of the 80s um, so even even when not physically active uh, in up in the anti-apartheid movement he's, he's still hugely important as the face of it yes of course overseas and then Mandela concerts and free Nelson Mandela song and he, he kind of symbolized for the anti-apartheid movement very increasingly powerful anti-apartheid movement overseas he 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 was their hero um, and also the, the, there's actually a really good film Mandela uh, the bi uh, biography, uh, so bi biopic of um, of Mandela is really well worth well worth watching. You said, Miss Scottish, you wish to talk about two key people. Oh, yes. Who would you like to talk about next? Well, the other one is Walter um, Latuli. Uh, he is sort of kind of the quiet, unassuming, and that's not just about his character, but also the quiet, unassuming leader of the ANC during this moment uh, when it shifts 
from uh, peaceful to violent. He is the one um, who is actually the president of the ANC at this time and uh, was it held the party together when the treason trial uh, was taking place and, and the Ravonia trial and, and the, the leadership um, was under a lot of the organisation which he led was under a lot of pressure and not surprisingly he, was the, he won the Nobel Peace Prize perhaps uh, the first African person to win it um, and yes he, 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 it, he was a leader when it got banned so uh, sort of a critical sort of person who held it together at a very difficult time. And again, someone who's often overlooked, you know, whilst he is hugely important, a lot of people, you know, we talk about Mandela, we talk about Tambo, but often we forget to mention people like Lithuli. Um, excellent. Last question then before we end is, who are the key groups that we need to know about? Well, the ANC is uh, very obviously, uh, Mandela's organisation really led the um, uh, the anti-apartheid movement and I think kept it going, um, although they were rather... Um, uh, over, I, I hinted earlier that they, during the seventies in particular, they the anti-apartheid movement in Africa was rather uh, ineffectual. The NC stayed in stayed there, stayed around. So then it was could exploit the weaknesses of the National Party in the nineteen eighties. Um, interestingly, it's a multiracial party. Um, it's got strong links with the South African Communist Party. It, uh, the Freedom Charter was almost their manifesto, and there's a, it's, it's left-wing, but also it's very inclusive as well, recognising implicitly that the Afrikaners have a right to some kind of autonomy, uh, as well as different uh, black tribal groups uh, and so on. Um, so the NC is the famous organisation that um, kept it all going. They're there military offshoot the mk umkonto west this way they were perhaps a little quieter as i've said um targeting electricity pylons and so on uh, but it, again it just kept i suppose from the black perspective in south africa the anti-apartheid movement was still continuing uh, and they would hear news of these um bombings and destruction and, and that sort of kept the, the, the mood alive, the movement alive. The uh, so South African uh, Communist Party uh, was um, often as well overlooked but very, had a substantial lead, um, membership and link working with the unions was able to uh, sort of direct um, sort of some grassroots protest and influence what was going on but of course we have not mentioned the cold war at all in this and this again was the context why did the west not pressurize the national party as much as they could have done well south africa was definitely not a communist part uh, government during the cold war and it was a very loyal ally to the west and there was a fear that if the anc came to power it would be an ally of soviet union uh, and so the South African Communist Party kept their uh, heads down, really. Uh, and um, another interesting person here, Joe Slovo and Ruth First, uh, the white leaders of the party, but um, had a had a sizable black uh, membership. Yeah, the link between the Communist Party and the ANC, I think, is particularly interesting within the context of something like the Ravonia trial, when the links between the Communist Party and the ANC are exposed. It's almost seen as tarnishing their reputation internationally. But I think we've covered most of the main groups there. The one we didn't quite maybe touch on is the PAC uh, and POCO. PAC obviously breaks off from the ANC uh, as a result of you know their group not wishing to work with the white community. And um, and they go on to, to you know deal with the past protests at Sharpeville. Um, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Mr. Guttridge and Mr. Pickering-Carter. Thank you. Thank you.